I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. Uh, we are joined on this episode of Radio versus the Martians by our good friend from KTQA Radio in Tacoma, Mr. Sam Mulvey. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Sam. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you for joining us at, at the end of the world, Sam. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I had out. I had always kind of told myself that if if the apocalypse does happen, it's going to be a lot more like a lot less fun than cinema makes it out to be. It, it's actually just sort of um, uh, the banality of destruction, if not necessarily the banality of evil, although there's some of that to be had right now, to be sure. Yeah, I'm trying to find the, the positive things as I can, and uh, oh boy, yeah. Uh, I've, I've, I think I've said this to you before, Sam, but it's one of those times that I'm really glad that I'm an atheist because if I believed in the end times, I don't know how I'd be processing this. Yeah, uh, all, all all that I'd need would need right now is uh, just a little bit of extra flavoring of some sort of afterworld supernatural horror to really bring 2020 together for me. Yeah, remember when we were scared of clowns for a while a few <laughs> years ago? Yeah, I do remember. Uh, I, I do remember that when 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 clown fear was was the main manufacturing uh, output of the social media machine. <laughs> hey, it's so quaint. I I just look think of the Michael Stipe in this instance. It's just the end of the world as we know it. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> and thank fucking right. God. <laughs> it's a, it, yeah. It's all right if we. It is okay if we basically say. We need a do-over. We need a, a mulligan. It's totally okay if you if we need a mulligan. It's been a while since we've had Jubilee. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, oh, totally. So um, with that, I want to thank our episode sponsors, who we have 15 of right now. Yay! Can you nice. believe that? It, the world is ending. Um, our audio quality has gone down, and we are making more money. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to have a special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Jem Newman, Sinjin, David Gutierrez, Calzone, Carol and Dave Brulette, Wim the Belgian, uh, Misa the Barbarian, Ryan Daly, and Dan Neideker. So thank you guys so much for your support. Uh, we love you. We hope you're still around next month, and uh, hopefully the world that comes out of all of this is going to be better, kinder, more humane, and less murdery than the one that we live in now. Oh, I'm so glad to hear Dan Neidecker's, uh Dan Neidecker's on that list, his name on that list. Um, Sam might even remember, Dan Neidecker was with us at the beginning of starting our, our sort of creative project journey together. So absolutely, he's, yeah. He's, he was. He's a good. He's a good human. A good guy. <laughs> sadly, he's not. Absolutely. Sadly, he's no longer with us. And by that, I mean don't mean that he's dead, but that he moved away. <laughs> so <laughs> he is no longer with us on this earth. He is an astronaut. No, he's 
he lives in he lives in Portland now, so he seems to be doing fine. Yeah, seems to like it there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have something. Sam, Mike. Uh oh. Snyder cut. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. just what we've always wanted. <laughs> who's who's we? <laughs> I mean, it's the royal we, I guess. I, I guess you, if you mean we, the royal we is a certain vocal <laughs> section of the internet. Um, I thought the rest of us had forgotten about this Justice League movie by now. I mean, even in the the world where there's a superhero movie coming out every ten minutes, you know, it sounds like crime statistics. But there's a superhero <laughs> movie coming out that frequently. It seems like this is one we forgot about. And oh, it's and it's totally okay because, as I think you said before, Mike, it'll it'll happen. It'll get released whenever it gets released. And then we will forget about it. <laughs> that's yeah. what will happen. And that's I didn't I didn't want to provoke any long term conversation. I just wanted to say Snyder Cut <laughs> That's it. Yeah. That's it. In ten minutes from now we don't even remember it. <laughs> no. I mean it's, again, it's just gonna be it's not gonna be a good movie. There's no version of this. There's no way to recut this and make it into a masterpiece. It's just not gonna happen. Well, I mean, case in point, the Richard Donner cut, right? Yeah. That was a point where it was like, oh, you might have been able to see somewhat of what he was trying to do, but it wasn't a better movie. It just was kind of interesting to the people who would care about such things. Yeah, it's also an unfinished movie. I think that's the thing that the Snyder Cut people might not realize is that it's one thing if you have a bunch of extra footage for, you know, my dinner with Andre. It's a very different thing if you have a movie where literally every shot in the movie is a special effects shot. Uh, There's that much green screen. There's that much digital work being done. I mean, Superman and Batman's capes are practically CGI so that they can control the way that they flap in the wind. And... You know, that's a lot of money in the post-production that filming it is not when it ends. It's kind of only the halfway point because you basically have to build the movie in a computer from that point onward. And I think a lot of people that have been sort of screaming for this movie to get released are not prepared for how unfinished and possibly rushed this is going to look. Because when you're not going to release it in theaters... There's a limit to how much money HBO or Warner Brothers is going to spend on adding those special effects in to shots that weren't in the other Justice League. So it might look kind of cheap and unfinished. And I think that's more fascinating as an artifact. I mean, I'd love to see a, a cut of any one of these big blockbuster movies released without any special effects. And it's just people running in front of green screens and reacting to tennis balls. And I think that would be kind of fun to watch once. <laughs> that would be cool. I would, lo- I would love a movie that's just people reacting, that's just called and is people reacting to tennis balls. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest with you. My head has been out of this game for so long. I, I didn't really understand what the hell Casey was talking about. And he starts shouting. I like, holy shit, Casey is shouting at me in German. It truly is the apocalypse. <laughs> Fuck. So, uh, the, and so the, I was like. The, 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 the quick of it, Sam, is that, you know, Zack Snyder, of course, left Justice League before it was finished. And right. Joss Whedon came on, which is kind of like, I was making beef stew and this guy wants to make chocolate fondue. So I guess right. they're in the same pot. Uh, those are not really congruent artistic styles. So the movie no. is kind of a Frankenstein's monster of of things they found at the graveyard. And, you know, 
it's really an uneven movie. Um, nobody really talks about it anymore. I mean, the, the, the sad fact, it wasn't like Snyder was, was fired from the movie. I mean, his, his daughter committed suicide and he had to leave for personal reasons. And I just like, I feel bad for him on that regard, but you know, had that never happened, this movie was never going to be great if he had had his way creatively. And already he was probably under a greater restraint from Warner brothers because there was a lot of backlash to Batman V Superman, uh, in terms of the artistic direction and all that came back while he was making this movie and the perfect time to make artistic changes is mid filming. So it just seemed like this was doomed. And so, so you're seeing this less as, as a, Oh, this is going to fix the movie as this is an incredibly interesting sort of historical artifact that would give us sort of a perspective on, on, on the creation of this film. Yeah. On on making any blockbuster movie, really. Cause I mean, that you, I mean, Anything, anything from, you know, your Michael Bay Transformers movies, anything, which is that there is so much digital post-production work on any of these after the actors. Um, The other thing, too, is that when you're adding all these shots in, the reason you have so much post-production, even reshoots, is that sometimes your shots don't cut together. Sometimes somebody's eyeline is wrong. Maybe the two shots don't cut together well. Maybe the haircut of that actor changes. Maybe the lighting is wrong. So you do that shot again in a way that that kind of grooves better with the shot that proceeds and follows it. And I don't think you're going to get all those. The mustache is a great example. (laughs) I I would much rather see a version of Justice League where they don't digitally remove the mustache. And every so often, Superman just has a mustache for a shot or two. And it's not. If Superman can have a mullet, he can have a mustache. That's totally fine. Yeah. I would love to see that. I would love to see the the mustache cut or the mustache not cut. <laughs> of, yes, yes, of Justice League. Yes. But I just I want the to think about the uncut. You know, because I, I think ultimately the reason I'm kind of glad they're releasing that is not because I really want to watch it. I'm only vaguely curious about this. Is I just want it to be over with. I want the people fighting over this to be over with and go see it's out. Now you don't really care so much. We're done. You know, this wasn't, this isn't like, what was it? The, what is the name of the, um, that lost Orson Welles movie that they finally finished and released on, on Netflix? Oh, the wind, Uh, wind something. Yeah. I'm not sure. The name of the wind or something like that. Where is, where is, where is Rob Kelly when we need him? Because he's our, our Orson Welles guy. I started, but Um, didn't finish that movie. But so that tells you something about it. (laughs) But it feels like there was something there. There was something to sort of recreate, not just as an artifact of, of a a filmmaker we lost, but it felt like, you know, I've heard good things about that movie. And the other side of the wind, the other side of the wind, it feels like the other side of the wind was recovered from obscurity. And now we have a piece of art that is, has value to it outside of the story of it being lost. And I think with Justice League, I mean, I don't think this movie was ever going to be good. And I think we can get on with forgetting it again. You know, (laughs) we can get to the other (laughs) side of this crisis and just have the death of a hashtag and people can go on to going, oh, that's what I fought over. I, I, I get this. I get the sense that what you're aiming for here is to have this movie come out and then to go on stage and say, my fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. (laughs) We've pardoned, we've pardoned Zack Snyder. You know, it's totally, that's an interesting 
point of, I mean, Mike, how many things are on our short list of topics of dead horses for which we have clubbed uh, past death into the undead multiple times? One of them would be is not unlike the way M. Night Shyamalan is. I would like Zack Snyder to have a second chance um, only because I think there were a couple of things that he did that were interesting um, and he's, his output, his creative output still isn't over. And I, I think there could still be something there if he chooses a project that's just sort of not one of these like comic booky over the top pop culture things. If he chooses to find his own voice in something, I still think well, that the good, the good part could be is Zack Snyder could leave this behind, could say no more DC universe garbage, no more trying to adapt comic books, try something else. And I would be... I would be happy if that were the case. I'd like to, and I would like, I'd like to see that more than I would like to see a Snyder cut. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know what else there, there more is to say about Zack Snyder. I mean, he, I mean, we've beaten that horse. It's like a pile of spaghettios at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, especially with me. How many Zack Snyder movies have you guys made me watch over the years? <laughs> yes. uh, too many, I would yes. say. <laughs> um, yes, too many. <laughs> So and you didn't even see his worst ones either. So my no. Mike, well, Mike I you just saw the wow. middle. I, I wanted to. Uh, I remember because we're on the topic of Batman. We may not come back to him again. So I want to make sure. Uh, I was. I live in a neighborhood that has lots of little free libraries. Do, do you guys know what the little free libraries are? Yes. Oh yeah. So for our listeners who may live in a place that doesn't have this clearly very progressive idea. Um, you can instead of delivering old books that you haven't read to the library or recycling them or giving them to Goodwill or whatever, um, people build tiny little boxes with doors outside of their house on, by the sidewalk. So anyone walking by can leave a penny, take a penny. Um, and it just so happened that a couple of weeks ago, somebody was depositing, was clearly cleaned out their closet and depositing a shit ton of 90s comics um, which you you know the reputation of 1990s comics is not typically very high. So I went and scrounged through what I could of stuff that was interesting, and I shared this with Mike. But Sam, you don't know. Um, there is a signed copy of Batman number 900, or excuse me, 497, signed by I guess the writer, the illustrator, the inker, and. I don't know who else, but Jim Aparo is one of the names that's on here as well. Ooh. And Mike wow. Mike floated the idea. I mean, it has um I can just describe it to our listeners since we're we're on radio here. It's a Batman cover and it has a a, a suitably jacked Bane breaking <laughs> breaking Batman's back by crunching him over his knee. He's doing a backbreaker in the Batcave. Um, you have Bane front and center. So it's recreating a critical moment from the last of the Batman movies, the Batman trilogy movies. And Oh, this is where that uh, that movie got that image. Oh, is it really? Was this Yeah, in the early 90s DC went through a big, you know, kind of let's shake everything up. Like Superman was killed, Batman's back was broken, Green Lantern became a bad guy. Oh. Uh and this was kind of the middle of that. So there this started a very long um, storyline where Batman had to come back from that, and uh, this sort and of and it's part- largely this storyline where my dislike of superhero comics comes from because of what it did to the fucking lunchroom while it was happening. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it it took over for a while, but it was you know so this this crazy person who was kind of a protege of Batman became the new Batman, and he 
in a lot of ways, I think the idea that the writers were doing was, hey, what if we gave these fans the thing they said they wanted and show them that they don't actually want it? So Batman is dressed in armor with knife fingers and he's like brutalizing villains and acting like a psychopath and going all over the city, um, terrorizing people and eventually starts killing them uh, before Batman, you know, kind of recovers, comes back and kicks the shit out of this guy and takes back his name. So um, it was it was an interesting run. And Jim Aparo was definitely one of those artists that I have a lot of affection for. He's been drawing the character at that point since the 1970s and um, had worked on him forever. He kind of draws one of those iconic Batman. I think it's like him, Neil Adams. Uh, those are the sort of artists that when I have the image of Batman in my head, that's that's what I imagine with a classic blue and gray costume. But yeah, the 90s is all about sort of like, let's break our characters and either bring them back after a few months or replace them with a new character. And uh, DC was just hitting that that reset button real hard at the time. And uh, the the fact that you got that, that, that thing is signed by all of those people, that is actually the thing about it that I find just fascinating. Well, that, I, uh, I mean, I have no desire to read this or open it up, to be perfectly honest. I do want to say that there is a certificate of authenticity on the back. So and I and, and I know it is uh, what does it say? It is a, a, from a limited edition of nine thousand. But what number is it? I don't know what number. Oh, it's tw- two thousand eighty-two out of nine thousand. Can you believe that they produced nine thousand signed editions of this one copy? That sounds like an awful lot to sign. Sounds like a r- well, really really it's an awful wrist. lot to sign. But yeah. you can you can make some money with those signatures. I mean, that's signed by Jim Aparo, who's sadly not with us anymore. I actually do like that run of Batman comics quite a bit. I actually read that during uh, my cancer treatment. I read a bunch of the Batman from the '90s nice. stuff, and I huh. I do enjoy it. If you want to see Batman sort of pushed to the bloody edge, and uh, well, I do I do like Bane a lot. Bane is basically just like a really angry luchador who was born in a prison and just wants to beat the shit out of Batman. Um, he's a fun character. I, I do enjoy him. Well, Mike, you floated the idea and, and uh, I think this is a great idea. We, we should brainstorm how it is that we do this. We should make this issue, since I have no desire whatsoever to own this, but it could be a contest that we could give to our loyal listeners and what what should we ask them to do for the let's, selection let's process? I don't know. Let's figure something out. Uh, maybe um, fan let's, art. Let's talk about it. Fan art. What was that? Poetry. I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. Let's let's talk about this off air. Okay. Figure this out. All right. Because I, I I think there's a brainstorming process here. Because if we have something that people might necessarily want, let's. Maybe even do a little bit of good with it and see what Maybe we Maybe a seven-year space mission where you ultimately acquit them of being human beings? <laughs> <laughs> you are making a TNG reference. I am. I can do that now. <laughs> oh, have you, have you watched TNG now, You've Sam? been cleared, Sam. Uh, you've, you've, you're, the, the NDA is now lifted, and now you're cleared to talk about TNG. Yeah. Didn't I break this on your show that, <laughs> yeah. that, that I've been low-key watching a lot of Star Trek the last few years? Yes, you did. You did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that continues. I, I, I'm, I, I've dropped that particular aspect of, of my uh, on-air personality because it was getting kind of stale compared to what science fiction has actually been doing lately. 
So I want to talk a bit about that, about the idea of sort of escapism, because I mean, obviously, God, the world is is in such a state that, and I don't I don't begrudge anyone from occasionally taking a break and watching something like TNG because it's almost like you can get worn down. I think that escapism to some extent is good for your sanity. That is a necessity to be able to take a break from a stressful world, a scary world. Um, I don't think we should live in that break. I think that's, that's just as dangerous people who don't want to acknowledge that it's the same kind of with the people who get angry and I don't want politics in my, in my fiction. And it's like, you know, fuck you. It, it, yeah. All, all art is political. All art is made by people who live in the world and that world will come into it. Um, I've but, made a sport out of fucking with those people on Facebook the last couple of days. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed I, to admit. I saw that somebody was uh, arguing with you about Watchmen. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how could Rorschach be a a, a racist? Uh, I uh, context clues from the source material. Exactly. I, things that yeah. he said. Uh, the, the the company he kept. Yes, the, um, the fact that he has a giant molding pile of racist literature that he collects is his <laughs> primary news source. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's not like there aren't other types of bigotry that come out of his mouth throughout the course of the series. He's got a lot of fucking issues with women throughout oh, that yeah. series that just boil to the surface constantly. Um, he's homophobic. He's a violent psychopath. Um, just because he has a sad backstory and that he's sympathetic in many ways. That's just a testament to Alan Moore's writing. But the dude is still a fucking creep who eats through your garbage and breaks people's fingers in seedy bars. So, I mean, this is right. not a good dude. And at the end of the story, when he thinks he's going to die and needs to pass his journal on to somebody he can trust, he sends it to basically a John Bircher newspaper so that they can print it. That right. Those are so, the people he trusts, the people who have an article praising the clan. Basically, <laughs> he sends it to InfoWars. I mean, yes. That's- that's what he does. That that's that's what this is. Exactly. So I mean, uh, I don't. There's enough pieces there. You can go. Okay. Do I know for absolutely certain is he a racist? No. But is he very very probably a racist? Yes. I think. It'd I be would cl- say the the sort of the clues that that there are like n- now that you've actually made me uh, wa- read Watchmen more than once. Um, I would say that there there are clues that that. Uh, suggests that he does sort of lean in that direction, but he he does, but it, he never co- overall uh, just comes out and says it because that's not really where he is. Um, sort of in the same way that that, uh, um, God, I don't even know that I want to go in this direction, but I'll try it. But you know, uh, I'm not racist, but uh, oh, all the crime comes from one place, doesn't it? Now, yeah, that kind of thing. The I'm not racist, but it's the lady in the park uh, who is threatening a black man uh, who's telling her to leash her dog by saying, I'll call the cops and they'll kill you, but not wanting to seem racist while doing it. So explicitly (laughs) saying African-American. So that's what we're talking about. It's like, well, I'm doing this for me. I'm still a monster, but I want to use the right verbiage. Because that's the part to me that 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 defines the line between being racist and not racist, and it's like that sounds to me like you're racist. 
but there's there's a line that 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 you you pointed out that I think is really important is uh you know for the record I have been this is the first time I've spoken into a microphone other than doing the daily news briefings for KTQA uh in about 2 weeks after all of all of the the bad stuff that uh, you talked about at the beginning of the show started going down I went radio silent and it's not because I don't um uh, I'm not paying attention. It's actually it might it's actually the opposite. I'm I'm paying a lot more attention to what's happening than I am talking right now. But it's just what I've been doing for the other show, you know, for asking atheists just felt so ugh when um all of this is going on and my energies could be better spent working on the radio station where I have where where it's less about me talking and more about enabling other people to talk. And that's yes. where my energy has been. And that's that's really where my heart is right now, which is why you're not hearing me as much as you used to. Um, but, I, I mean, I've been locked up in this house since March. And uh, for the record, I am an essential worker, but I'm only an essential worker when shit breaks. And I'm a good engineer. My shit doesn't break that often. So I don't get to leave the house a lot. And you know what? I'm I'm, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna let that sit. I like I used to like. God, am I actually good at this? Yeah, three months and I've had to leave the house twice. Yeah, I'm good at this. Um, uh, but I am goddamn stir crazy. I uh, I, it's actually gotten to the point now where if I go outside, my eyes don't focus right. You know how people who are trapped in in buildings for a long time they talk about how they're. E- eyes work a little bit differently when they're readjusting to being outside again. That's happening to me right now. I can't drive. You're like a welder, um, Sam. You're like a welder. You take that mask off and everything's upside down. Yeah. And so, uh, um, but I'm spending a lot of time working on technology, on on, on, on helping Becky organize interviews and stuff like that. Um, so you've got the folks who are like, I don't want politics in my discussions of these, social discussions of these things, which is just... Uh, yeah, that's just a dog whistle. We know that. It's all um, politics. What they're really saying is, I'm angry that it's not my politics. Not that right. there's politics there at all. And um, I hate that I'm angry that people are making me think inwardly, and I don't like what I see, so shut up. Yeah, and so, you know, that, there's a difference between that and, like, God, I've been working all day, and I need a break for my mind. and need some self-care. I'm going to kick back and watch Bride of the Monster. Yeah. You know, and, that, I, and that, it, that's what I'm doing right now. That's that's escapism. It's good. But it, again, you're not disengaging from the rest of the world that it's right. like I need a break from that because I, my, my brain's like a tightened coil. And if I if I take in too much at once, I could fucking snap. So I need to do this for a second. This is for me. But, you know, I'm not completely disengaging from the world. I'm not saying I don't need to think about my own behavior. I don't need you know, you're not doing that. Right. It, yeah. And this is the other thing is I'm finding that the real world, again, it, it follows you back. I mean, this isn't uh, escapism is not Vegas. You know, <laughs> <laughs> things do follow you back and it, it goes both ways. Like, God, at the state of the world, it's affecting my ability to get escapes, escapism from certain sources. Like, is, is this happening with you guys? Is there something? Is, it, is this just changed the tenor? And the flavor of so many things that it just, it feels like, like, for instance, 
I can't watch anything or read anything with hero cops in it right now. I just have no fucking time for it. To- I can't enjoy it. Totally understandable, Mike. <laughs> I just don't fucking want it because it's kind of like when the it, the fantasy is so obvious now, the lie of it is so obvious that everything just tastes like propaganda. Yeah. Here, hero cop shows have long been banned in my house, and I, and everybody always like. You know, I, I'm always, I, I've always been. Uh, people have their likes. I'm not gonna, I, I'm not gonna judge people for what they like or what they what they dislike, and that goes even for people in my household. And that's that's always been a position that I take. And so when people find out that like the Law and Order series or NCIS or whatever are just are are shows that I outright do not want in my home or on my television. People are always like, "Wow, really?" Like, "Yeah, I I don't like these shows because of 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 how they portray cops." And and, it, and it, it's like yeah. I know that there's a lie there. I know that the it's like I think there's about as much in common between the cops on these shows and the cops in real life as there are between the talking fish in the Little Mermaid and fish in real life. <laughs> It's like that crab in real life isn't going to sing a song about how wonderful it is to live under the sea. Right. These are these are completely two different things that, you know, you know, I'm sorry, Commissioner Gordon and Columbo have as much in common with real life policing as Green Lantern does. Right. And it's it's just gotten to the point where it just is impossible to ignore the reality of it and maybe this is just like me having my little dumb white guy awakening i mean the thing is i knew that this was the case but i could still turn it off and and be in a fantasy world for a a while and i could even do it with stuff like say dirty harry which is outright right-wing propaganda but But dirty harry's a fucking cartoon it is that's what i mean is it's it's a cartoon angle of it but it's a cartoon that some people seem to live in and you can find that out on facebook and next door that um that cartoon is the way a lot of people see policing and they see it in an aspirational way. And it's yeah. like a lot more people are a lot more sympathetic to judge dread than I never would have imagined. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it judge dread is one of those things. Um, you know, this, the, before all everything, um, before George Floyd and, and all that, uh, and, and all the protesting, you know, before the murder and everything that followed it, um, you know, one of the things I was going to talk about is stuff, uh, is, is Mike, you have long been an advocate of allow people to like things. And, and I was going to say, I agree with you, but I think we need to extend that a little bit and say, also say, allow people to hate things. And, and one of the things I was going to talk about was Judge Dredd in that I was like, you know, a lot of people who defend it say in, in 2000 AD in the comic book and all that, oh, he's clearly a, a, a representative of, of American fascism. And it's a it's a it's a it, it's a parody. It's it's showing the flaws inherent to the system. I'm like, but boy, howdy, do the writers and fans really love that fucking Judge Dredd, Judge Dredd character. They really make him out to be the good guy. He's always he always seems to be on the side of right. And I just can't. I don't think it's as much of a parody as you're making it out to be. I, I think it. I think maybe it started that way. Yeah. And it is that way for some people, but for a lot of people out there, it's not a parody. It's an instruction manual. Well, I think the 
that I think Judge Dredd clearly started out as a biting satire, which is why it's set in America and the the cop is dressed like a straight. He is in a fascist regime. He has a giant right. golden eagle on his on one shoulder and a giant cod piece. Right. Um, but I think that the parody angle of that, I think it's gotten lost over the decades that he's been out and that people have forgotten that this character is monstrous that it should be very Paul Verhoeven where, you know, Judge Dredd, if it's done well, it should look something like Starship Troopers, where it's clear that we are satirizing fascist propaganda. Mm-hmm. And I think that Judge Dredd started that way, and it was very clearly not to be taken totally seriously. But I think along the line, they have storylines like, oh, the the people come together and they get to vote on what sort of system they have. And they choose to keep the system where cops are judge, jury, and executioner by democracy. And I'm like, at what point does it feel like the author somehow sided with this guy? And And it's not the same authors, right? I I, I get the sense that the guy, the folks at the comic who were making him a parody kind of left. And the people who came, came in... We're like, hey, this could be a good idea. We got to keep, you know, or, or they were just coming up with storylines to keep the character going. Yeah. And I think sometimes along the lines, you you develop a character and you give him nuance or whatever. But I think ultimately you have to remember what he is. And this is, I think, uh, something I think readers also lose lose uh, sight of that. This happened with the character of Rorschach and Watchmen, which is yeah. that in a lot of ways, he's the character you follow through the story. He's the one who is exploring the plot beats, but he's not a hero. He's like a, he's like a Bernie Getz type who dresses like a children's adventure character. And I think Alan Moore remembers that throughout the story. And even though there are things that make him sad, if not outright sympathetic, but he's never a good guy. He's actually shitty at his job if you really right. look at it, that he can kill your average mugger or rapist uh, by strangling them or setting them on fire. But he's completely off on the wrong track for the entire investigation that sort of is the backbone of the series, that he gets manipulated by the person who is behind everything. And even when he sends his journal off, it's still on the wrong track because they are totally wrong until Dan Dryberg manages to accidentally guess the password of a computer and then the plot just falls in their lap up until that point, the best they have is going into bars, beating up random people because they look shady, getting no, you you know, useful leads and then just kind of bumbling around while they're manipulated. That's what I kind of like about it is that he's so not Batman. He's so not steering the story. Um, and I think a lot of fans have missed that. They've missed the fact that he's, kind of a scary dude and that he probably smells like garbage and he eats out of the trash and he's a racist. And, um, that was Alan Moore saying something about what a vengeance driven superhero character would be like in real life, that they wouldn't be like Batman. As someone who didn't read Watchmen until they were in their forties and had like lived basically with people who were Watchmen fans, you know, my whole life. Um, it never occurred to me until I read it myself just how large incompetence looms as a concept in the series. Everybody talks about all the characters as if they're great when most of the characters screw up in that story. 
almost nobody gets it right. Not even, not even Atomic Blue Dong guy gets it right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and 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 but listening to fans of it, you never got that sense, and so. Uh, the the storyline be- sounded really kind of bad to me until Mike finally sat me down and kind of forced me to read it. And I'm like, wow, there's a lot more going on here than the fandom lets on. And what gets me is that people don't seem, people who love it still don't seem to see that. And you see that in the Zack Snyder movie where he seems to think that these guys are awesome and they should punch through concrete and do wire foo. And I'm like, that's so not the series that they can fight average people, but it's still kind of awkward and uncomfortable. And after they're done, they're sweating. And, you know, Rorschach doesn't beat up 50 cops. The cops do what cops do, which is they descend on him and just start hitting him with sticks and kicking him in the face. And that's the end of the fight. Yeah, it's it, it the one of the weirdest things now that, that we're thinking about it that I'd never really put my finger on is the fact that the characters are still incompetent in the movie, but they're portrayed as not incompetent and you have to ask yourself is this starship troopers or did they just not get it i think he didn't get it i i think that uh zack snyder is not alone in being somebody who loves the the sort of superficial surface level stuff and wants to recreate it so lovingly but doesn't seem to understand I think everyone seems to miss all that shit. You know, it's the same way that people go through all five seasons of Breaking Bad and there are people who come out of it still thinking that Walter White is the good guy. Yeah, geez. Those people legitimately frightened me. They do. Yeah. (laughs) The Nathan R. Jessup fans from A Few Good Men who they just see that one speech and you forget that this is a speech that is all about how I do this job that nobody else wants to do, so therefore I should have no oversight and have license to commit commit murder if I want to, because I keep you all safe. And it's like, that's fucking monstrous, and you should be taken to the Hague. Um, You know, it's that kind of shit. And But there are people that just, that's the part of the movie that hits them in the brain, because Jack Nicholson is a great actor. Right. And and has those those great, I told you so moments that people find really emotionally rewarding. Like they, they have their moments where, where they make bad people have moments of comeuppance in, in Breaking Bad. Um, you know, where uh, the, 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 the malice of, of Walter White brings down a, a lot of other people who are also bad. So it gives you the sense that he's the good guy. He's not, though. He's not doing it because he's a superhero. This isn't a freaking superhero show. Not everything's about superheroes. He's a bad guy. There aren't a lot of good people in that series. Um, and that's the other thing I like with with that show. What makes Breaking Bad great are not the moments where he gets to go full on Heisenberg and be the badass. My favorite moments of Brian Cranston performance are the moments where the fucking walls start to cave in on him, that his bullshit doesn't work and he becomes kind of pathetic and sad and scared. And those are the moments that make him a fascinating character, not the moments where he gets to be the badass that exists in a thousand other movies. Right. Oh boy. I I don't know. It's just, I wonder if I should keep, you know, kind of keep going with that theme. Because part of the reason I, I wanted to go with that is just because... Ah, uh, deep dive. Uh, as as a kid, um, I was always put, you know, I, I was always sitting at the table with the comic book guys and 
and whatnot, because, you know, sometimes X equals X. Um, but I always had to hear about things that I, I part of the reason I became such a, a critic about about the about things and, and I, you guys used me for that for the show was because I was forced to like listen to um to to listen to stories about things that I had zero interest in and that the person I was talking to had zero could not read any social cues that I essential that was saying please do not talk to me about this talk to me about the stuff I'm interested in I am done talking about this and that you know that was a huge chunk of my social interactions in childhood um I I know far more about the Dragonlance novels and the ElfQuest series than any human reasonably should uh hello yeah, I can, I can oh, get okay. you. Right. I, yeah. But I think it's definitely one of those things. This is the nerd curse, and yeah. it's the the behavior that I try to eradicate in myself. As I, I'm not always too super successful with it, but I think the idea is, you know, don't be a nerd version of a Kirk Cameron movie. Right. Don't don't be someone who's just kidding people over the head with with this sort of stuff. It, it just goes, Jesus Christ. Do you actually want somebody to try this or do you want them to hate it without ever looking at it? Because it is very easy to make people go, I don't want to try this because this reminds me of a really uncomfortable conversation where somebody wouldn't fucking leave me alone. Where I think you I was worried that you might be you might see that as as something I'm saying to you is and it's it's not because I think there's two solutions to this problem. Um, and I think you and I have tried for the same solution because remember, I'm a weird electronics radio computer guy. I can talk about shit. Nobody cares about for hours and hours and hours. And I do. Um, but there's two ways to do this. There's a subtractive and I think both are required if you were going to be a fan who is evangelical, and in this case evangelical is not necessarily a bad word is you can be subtractive, which is talk about it less allow other things to happen. You need that. But you also can learn to communicate better. And this is where I think, I, I think this is kind of where the, the sausage is made for Radio versus the Martians. Is what, I, what I've always liked about talking about stuff I don't like with you, Mike, is that you make stuff I don't like interesting in the telling. And that's incredible. I appreciate that. Um, I try to be. I try. I think I, one thing I try to keep in in context, well, as on this show, but even talking with people, is what is the part of this that they probably hate, and who are the people that they're probably talking to, and how do I not sound like that person? Right. Because those people bug me too. Yeah. yeah there's there's a lot of shitty fans for all sorts of things, um, that they have a hard time communicating anything other than their specific experience and they try to relay something that is very sort of personal and specific to them as if it's a universal thing uh not understanding that they're being an ambassador for something rather than just going blah 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 blah, blah and expecting that just by reciting a list of things that happen that you're going to have the same response to it as if you were reading it. Cause these are, you know, a, a plot synopsis on Wikipedia is not the same as, as reading a book or watching a movie. Absolutely not. Yeah. That the how is, is way more important than the what. And that's why he goes, I could just write down the plot to any best selling novel and I wouldn't get it published. And people would just love me if I just wrote out 
you know, that it's the experience of, of going there that, you know, that fiction when it's good is an empathy machine, that it gets you into the, the heads and experiences of people that aren't like you and makes you feel what they're feeling that you can, you can even cry at the death of a person that never existed. That's, that's what it's all about. It's about, you know, touching you emotionally and making you, you know, forget that part of you that, that knows that this isn't real. And you kind of give it permission to sort of take over and the people, the, the art that can do that effectively and sort of win that permission from you. That stuff is gold, but just simply reciting, this is what happened and this is what happened. That was awesome. But unless you've both seen it, those conversations mean nothing to somebody. Yeah. So I, mean, I think what's missing, I, Mike, is that uh, the reason why I, people aren't usually entirely like uh, aware of the reasons why they seek it out. But I mean, people want that dopamine kickback from your mirror neurons. You know, like people are looking right. for, just think about the the first sort of nerds that shared your sort of same circle, social circle in your childhood and the kids that sort of like, Oh, I'm, I, you know, I'm so excited about this. And like that you could talk for hours about stuff and where, what now would bore you after 20 minutes. It's because you get that crazy fucking feedback response and people are genuinely looking for that. And it might just be something endemic to being an adult and having, you know, having your, your feedback responses to many different things. Cause obviously you're, you're as an adult, your world gets more complicated and you generally have to end up doing more stuff you don't want to do before you can spend time slacking and doing things that you don't, you do want to do and you get more sophisticated. Obviously I feel like the thing that we might be missing here is the internet makes it. So people get to seek out exactly precisely the targeted uh, sort of neuro, neuron response triggers that they want of the su subjects that they end up wanting. And it makes them, over time, it makes us incapable of being able to be like, huh, I just want to sit back and listen to this person who I like talk about something that interests them and just be genuinely interested about something that interests them. And not to talk about myself a, a lot, but I generally, in a conversation, tend to like to listen to other people um, versus trying to wait for my wait for so I can talk over them. Um, and maybe that's the hard part for a lot of people is now they're just so cloistered. They want to be like, I want to talk about this. You know, I want to find someone to talk about this with. Sometimes the joy can come from actually listening to someone and then you can yeah. learn to appreciate it. You know, it's, it's easy, probably really easy for Mike. Cause Mike just needs to start his motor. Um, and people are just, <laughs> people are just like drawn to him. I mean, I've seen it, I've seen it happen so much. People are just sort of like drawn into the sort of, chaotic beautiful black hole that is that is sort of mike gillis's <laughs> brain um but yeah but, even not, but it, most people i think are just looking to get their rocks off in that way you know yeah and i think that's, that's something i've definitely found kind of frustrating is that some people have when they take in you know literature or movies and stuff it's such a it's weird because it's not i am not a, a critic i am not super uh educated or anything i can't talk about this with the same kind of academic credentials that someone like say a Lindsay Ellis could talk about it. Um, but what often shocks me when, when talking to just people in just a basic social circle is how many people don't pick up things that I think are fairly obvious, uh, in, in literature or movies or stuff. And it just, it's not that they're dumb. It's that I don't think they are looking for very much when they consume 
uh, media. And I find that a little bit disappointing. And maybe that might be key to why we get into things like, I don't understand. I, Walter White's clearly the main character, so he's a good guy. Um, is, is that possibly? Or Rorschach is kind of the lead character. We're following this story through, so he must be a good guy. And not thinking sort of critically about something? I don't know. Is is that where this is kind of coming from? This brings me into one of the, like, I think was going to be the centerpiece and one of my favorite dislike pinatas, uh, which is Warhammer 40K. Mm. <laughs> oh, my God. My, I don't, my, my older conservative. I've always thought of that as, like, fascism, the board yes, game? Yes, yes. My older yeah. conservative right-winger brother, who is an ex-Marine, loves Warhammer 40K for Probably the same reasons you're talking about, Sam. You're <laughs> fucking kidding. I'm me. not kidding at all. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Uh, I I always called it fascism emulator thirty nine thousand. It's um, it, it's. Uh, I mean, okay, they basically lifted God Emperor of Dune, um, but but instead of uh, a worm that fights of uh, that farts spice, they put in He Man with a die job. <laughs> and um uh and, and yeah i i cannot i i cannot stand the world and i and like the two the two the two fandoms that that the two types of fans are are you know oddly enough if you feature eagle iconography uh in, in your in your media and uh and you're not satirical about it chances are i don't like it Oddly mm. enough, um, but uh, I just noticed that because that's like both in um, Judge Dredd and yeah, in Warhammer Forty K. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, where where yeah, people are people just want their miniatures and have their their space weirdo battles or whatever. Um, but then other people really like get into the story or, or the fluff, as it were, um, and really like the 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 hyper fascism and the hyper feudal fascism and 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 rampant xenophobia and uh, of the world and try to apply and see it as an instruction manual and mm. it, it always made it um and it, it it was always the 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 cre the creepiest of the of, of the gamers for me we're, we're always uh uh just below actual war gamers of, of which i was once one um uh, we're, we're the Warhammer 40k guys, and and so it was always my favorite hate pinata uh, for a long time. Um, and I was gonna talk about it a lot because they always they always seem to like play up their the the fascism thing, and and the Games Workshop was always a very mercenary company. And then when when uh, the response to the the George Floyd murder happened, that Warhammer actually said, "Hey, uh, if you're a racist and you you like our our setting a little too much." Maybe this isn't for you. Or they literally said, you will not be missed. Hmm. And goodbye. And and that was that was shocking to me. Cause from my from my perspective, Games Workshop is one of the most merced like in a mercenary in, uh, in, in in an industry as mercenary and tone deaf as tabletop gaming, Games Workshop was like the apex of that. And so and no, I was going to, I was going to, I'm kind of questions about uh, Games Workshop is I see these little shops in malls and there's one of them in downtown Kent 
and they're typically empty. And I know there's occasionally one or two people in there. Is this, as my assumption leads me to believe, is this like when I see a store that is like the organ and piano store, where I imagine that the people that go in there aren't people who kind of come in randomly and buy little things, that the people who go in there go in there in small numbers to spend a shit ton of money and then not come back for a long time. Uh, no, that's... It, I'm ahead. trying to figure out the business model because everything looks super expensive and then if you do tabletop uh, gaming, that you will, unless you are like Jeff Bezos, you cannot afford other hobbies and Casey? maybe eating. Uh, I mean, I, I've never played it before. Uh, as far as I know, the initial appeal for people is the modeling stuff. Um, I can't speak to the, I, I know the world a little bit. Um, as for the stores, Mike, yeah, I, I think it's similar to Magic the Gathering, um, that there might be that, sure, you could play it at someone's house, like like we all used to be able to do it, but largely the game stores, these sort of tabletop game stores, as well as comic book stores who've now functionally merged with tabletop game stores because they want to keep people in and spending money. Um, they're generally a place that you go to play with people. Um, so it may just be a coincidence, Mike, that you haven't seen people there, but I feel like the idea is, is it's the, it's the, the tabletop gamers equivalent of going to the neighborhood bar. Um, that's mm. where you go hang out with your buds and you know, uh, uh, that you guys have the same like, and your like is to do some, some tabletop miniature, <clears throat> miniature gaming, but I'm, I was never really into it, so I couldn't give you a better answer than that. But the, the impression I've gotten from, you know, just seeing it at a 10,000 foot level, I've worked at, I don't know how many bookstores and there are a line of novels about Warhammer 40 K oh, and, howdy. yeah. um, what I kind of get the impression of is that it takes place. This is just based on covers. I don't know anything about it. Is that it takes place in a future where everything is broken except the Nazi war machine, <laughs> and they just fight over the rubble constantly with monsters. And it looks like maybe possibly the worst future to be marooned in. Um, but the iconography of the, the humans in the game seem to be as third Reiki as you can possibly get. And that's disconcerting to me because I, I know that there are, it, it, the impression I get is it, it reminds me very heavily of a certain type of person who's really into world war II, especially the Nazi war machine, but never seems to want to talk about the crimes that the Nazi regime committed, just that how cool and shiny their tanks are. Yeah, they lean really heavily on that. They do. Um and uh and, and that's the vibe I've always gotten from the the part of the community that gets into the storyline a little too much or, you know, like I said, my 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 experiences with Warhammer 40K have always been a little bifurcated. And the fan and Warhammer Fantasy was never that big in the places I walked. Um but you had the the creepy dudes who were just really into it and and liked having an art you know a fascist uh, miniatures game that they could play because actually playing Nazis, which is possible in a miniature game, just <laughs> wasn't enough for them. Um, yeah, they play super Nazis. Yeah, they want yeah they want hyper Nazis. Um, and then you got people who just uh, 
uh, who just want to play space elves or space orcs or or whatever and and shoot and go pew 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 with their little plastic bits. And and those guys I don't have a problem with. They're they're generally pretty self aware and funny. It's the other guys I got the problem with. Um, and those guys are almost precisely like uh, uh, like those World War Two guys, as you were saying. Um, but to wrap that up, it's like in in the in the sort of when I was doing the research for this bit, I'm kind of I'm kind of doing this this bit kind of differently. You know, it's like I don't want to talk about. It's it's really. It's really difficult to talk about things you dislike when hate is being displayed. Actual hate is being displayed on a daily basis on your television screen. Yeah. And and so I'm I'm kind of having coming about this askance because the heart of it was I wasn't. I what I really like about disliking a fandom is when I discover something I like about it. And and in the in the lead up to. Uh, to talking about this, I discovered a fan series on YouTube called If the Emperor Had a Text-to-Speech Device. <laughs> and it's hilarious. And it 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 hits almost all of the critiques of I, I've ever had about about the Warhammer 40k universe that isn't about the heavy creep heavy breathing creepy guys. And and it's like it, Oh wow. They can do this? Like it, it was it was so refreshing and actually so entertaining that it it made me a lot more comfortable talking about uh, uh it made me more comfortable with my dislike of that particular fandom. And uh I would check it out. Uh most recently, uh the most recent like he's been the the guy who makes it has been making it for years. Most recently, uh, the one of the main characters went to the Adeptus Mechanicus, well, went to Mars, which is where the Adeptus Mechanicus are. Um, like I said, I've had everything slowly explained to me. I know more about this than I should uh, for someone who has never touched a miniature in his life. Um, and and they have to they have to communicate in some sort of digital format, and they do and and as a stand-in, as sort of a a. a a, a, a visual, uh, an audio effect of communicating in 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 a binary format. They use rock opera. Hmm, that's pretty. It's, that's pretty it's, cool. <laughs> it's really well done, and and uh, and they review and they turn it into a podcast where they do sort of uh, pages will uh, uh, pages will never get back of one of the more infamous uh, Warhammer novels, and that's pretty good. Um, and so discovering something that you like about something that you dislike, it's such a, a load off, uh, off your brain about like, oh, okay, I can have an interface with these people now. Um, I can see, I, and I can also see that, you know, with the, with the, that there are people who see what, who like what this is and see what I dislike about it and are also concerned with it. And it just, it gives me, instead of making it an us versus them thing, it's a, okay, yeah, we see it. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's more of a, it, it, it makes it more integrated. So, um, you know, for, for social, uh, at least for social domain problems, like another, uh, another example of something that I really dislike and discovered something that I really like sort of in that same milieu is like really dislike Dragon Balls. Uh, not my thing. <laughs> really boring. You were intentionally Every... not pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> I, I, I have decided I am never pronouncing it correctly. This is true. Uh, 
I, like, I think it may be a generational barrier, but I think I'm just slightly too old to have. It's like if I was three to five years younger, I bet you I would know a shit ton about Dragon Ball Z. Probably, but you just take all the stuff you know about Superman and swap a few of the characters and you're there. It's not a big deal. Um, uh. And, and I'm just not a big fan of it. And and I would always have these questions like, well, why didn't why doesn't this just happen in the storyline? Why doesn't that just happen in the storyline? And then One Punch Man happened, which is a series that basically answered all of my questions in that regard. And it's hilarious. Yeah, very, it's and really, really made, funny. It's really funny. Yeah, and it just made me feel so much better about disliking something. And and so uh that was sort of the the end point I was gonna take this bit was was I discovered something I liked inside of something I didn't like, and that just makes me feel, for one reason or another, a little bit more connected to humanity. Self-aware fandom, I think, is one of one of my favorite little bits. When people kind of know that there's a thing about the thing they love that really doesn't hold up, that isn't very good, and they like to poke it a little bit, uh, it doesn't make them love it any less, but they kind of like to remind themselves that it's there and i think this is why the best kind of parody comes from people who love a thing rather than people who hate a thing because there's a level of 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 research into something you hate that you're not going to do compared to somebody who loves a thing and somebody who is consistently taking a thing in like i can rant about the the flaws in superhero comics or or whatever because I know it and because I've seen it and because I can see what the weaknesses in it are. It's part of the reason why I disliked um, Phoenix Jones as much as I did is that Phoenix Jones took a thing that I love and reminded me of how sad it is in real life. And he, it's like ruining the game when you try to bring this into a real world, unless your point is like with Watchmen to sort of tear it down and, and take it apart is it just got pathetic. And I'm like, ah, oh, dude, what are we doing? You're not going to be fighting the Joker. You're going to be dueling with drunks outside of a bar at two in the morning. And it's just fucking sad. I mean, but I think that sort of self-aware fandom where people clearly love making fun of a thing that they love, that they're not so important about it. Like you said, let people also hate things. I think that just as a general rule, you should be willing to hear often biting criticism of stuff that you love and be able to take it because you know what? It's, you know, nobody kicked your dog. It's just a, a media property and not all of it is good. You know, super, mm -hmm. you know, Spider-Man's my favorite superhero. There are some fucking awful Spider-Man stories out there. Yeah. There really are. And I'm not, you know, giving up any kind of moral high ground if I admit that. It's fine. I think that you have to be able to because, I mean, uh, what what is it's a sort of a nerd fundamentalism that you can fall into. And I think it just gets weird. And my criticism, I love comic books, but comic book fandom oftentimes freaks me out because I don't think I've ever seen a group of fans that is less willing 
to try things outside of their comfort zone than comic book fans, that there are people who only read manga and refuse to read anything American, people who only read superheroes and refuse to read anything that doesn't have superheroes, or I only read these super highfalutin indie, you know, underground books, or, you know, and I refuse to read any manga, I refuse to read superheroes, I refuse to try anything out of this. And it's more stupidly self-segregating than any group of people that I've probably ever seen in any kind of media fandom. And I frequently just, it drives me crazy how um, it's a medium that's really just pictures and words on paper. That's all it is. And you can tell literally any story with the combination of those two things. So why do you only want to watch one genre? Because when you move them outside of comics into like, say, movie or novels or film or anything, they don't do that. It's not like, oh, I only watch Westerns when I watch television. I mean, nobody <laughs> does. You know, it's it's ridiculous. It, I mean, you laugh because it's on its face ridiculous. But yeah. I know people who do that with, with comics. And it's like, that is so limiting. And there are so many cool things outside of just the things that are, you know, parallel to things you already like. So... I just, I want more, you know, if you like superheroes, maybe try manga, maybe try, you know, some all ages books, maybe try something from Europe or from Japan, you know, don't just, you know, eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch every day. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> totally on board with it. I, it's funny that it, when I, uh, I'll hear, I'm of course, probably one of the people in the world, aside from probably Piper, that um, is the sounding board for a large majority of sort of Mike's stock um, sort of gripes uh, with media and with fandom in general. And the one thing I find is that clearly, Mike, you and I are in the same world, and then you and I are also in totally different worlds, um, because there is a huge percentage of sort of my thought about some of these things that is entirely focused on like, on like, will this be something that I have to explain to my children? And if so, how? Um, so isn't that literally everything on television? <laughs> yeah. Well, now, sure, for sure. Now, I mean, the thing that is the thing that I clearly uh, do not have the cycles and attention to be able to monitor appropriately is like, what is what are all of the strange influences that are entering, say, the dialogue that characters repeat or the, that characters bark out in a Netflix animated show? Because um, hmm. I, you know, you, uh, mostly those things are written for a dual audience, right? I think for in a large part, we probably don't want to admit it. Uh, the us uh, nerds don't want to admit it is that like the people who write for animated shows, even if they're supposed to be you know, you know, Y7 shows, they're just like loaded with jokes that are meant or plot points that are meant to reference things that us sort of uh, media savvy adults understand, you know, and that's part of the reward center. That's the we're watching it with our kids or we don't have kids and we're just grown children and we're watching cartoons. Um, surely I can I can see a lot of that, but I actually don't you know, you, it's it's not like I'm suspicious of the fact that there is a liberal media that's brainwashing our children. I don't necessarily think there's brainwashing going on. I just think that it's uh, that it's these things are thrown in, not contextualized by history. They're just thrown in as sort of media references. Um, and I don't know where they're coming from until they come out of the mouth of my seven year old. And then I'm like, hmm, I wonder where that came from and why that came up. Um, yeah, I remember that. Remember, Animaniacs did a lot of this back in the day. Yeah, where 
I mean, I was watching this as like a 10 year old and I was old enough to kind of coexist in both adult movie and kids media worlds at that point that I was aware enough that there was a segment on Animaniacs called Good Feathers, which parodied a Scorsese movie about gangsters. And I knew enough about it to know that the one of the pigeons in it was a parody of a Joe Pesci character from a movie uh, <laughs> that yeah. I had never seen. And it's sort of weird. It's a weird combination of these things that are kind of coming together or an episode of Animaniacs where they go back in time. And it's clear that the version of Michelangelo that they meet painting the Sistine Chapel is the version played by Charlton Heston in The Agony and the Ecstasy. That's great. <laughs> and it was the we weirdest confluence of events that we were watching The Agony and the Ecstasy at school uh, for a class at the same time that episode came on. I've never had the joke so fully uh, given to me all at once before. Or or uh, in the case of, of the Animaniacs complex of shows, um, it was a little, uh, it was a little after my time, but my brother watched it and just... Out of nowhere, the the brain does the frozen peas rant. Yes. Just like literally no context. Yes. <laughs> and my dad and I are like, what the hell is this? Yeah. They're, they're making an Orson Welles joke about a piece of audio that very few people at that time had ever been exposed to. Yeah. And it was a lengthy segment about it. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, but again, you have, you know, the guy doing the voice. I think Maurice LaMarche yes, does the voice yeah. of the brain. He, he lo And he uh, loves doing he, Orson Welles. He's done that on, like, pretty much every single show he's been on. They found a way to, <laughs> to shoehorn. I remember him doing it on The Critic which I think was probably yes. the best one of all of them. <laughs> no wine before it's time. Um, but yeah, yeah, Orson Welles, the, the, that voice and the fact that Brain is kind of heavily va uh, based on sort of an Orson Welles voice. And he's like, well, apparently he does his warm up as a voice actor doing the Frozen Peas rant. That's great. And that's how he get limbers up his vocal cords. That's hilarious. And I guess they finally decided to put it on Animaniacs. <laughs> they just changed enough of the profanity that they yeah. could put it on television. But, I mean, there's a question of who is that for? And I'm like, well, it's probably for the artist. That's who it's for. <laughs> but it was brilliant nonetheless. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I love it. I mean, it went over the heads of... Probably everybody, because this was really pre-internet, too. So yeah. it wasn't like I could look up that rant on YouTube, which you absolutely should. And this is the weird thing with it, is that Orson Welles is kind of being a dick, but he's also right. And that's the part <laughs> about it that I find fascinating. That, that should be the name of a biography of that guy. He's kind of a dick, but he was also right. <laughs> he was. I, I, it's, just, it's weird, because it's, I feel the same way about that... Um, Christian Bale Terminator rant. Yeah. Where he's a complete fucking dick. He's totally out of line, but he's also right. And it's weird. It's weird watching that. And um, but I don't know. I, I, I find it I find it kind of fascinating that you go, who is this for? This this reference in media, because I don't think the person watching this cartoon would have ever seen that other thing. And I'm endlessly fascinated by little things like that where you know you're just referencing um it's like a, a, the joke about deliverance would show up on like tiny toon adventures and i'm like who is the kid that has seen both of these 
Yeah, some of those cartoons seem sort of engineered for my household, given how many movies my dad watched. <laughs> so, you know, it's, a, it's so it's so intertextual that that it it becomes it, it becomes non sequitur comedy. It it was pretty good. Well, I, I I wish I had funnier examples of what uh, what Elliot, my son, brings to the table. Although there just turns a phrase that I never say, that me and my wife never say, that he comes up with that I'd be like, that had to have been in a show. Like, for example, I think he was out on the porch playing Legos and someone was asking him if he wanted to go somewhere. And he just said nonchalantly, hard pass. And I was like, okay, I, can, I get it. He, he communicated exactly what he needed to in two short words with the correct attitude. Hard pass. Nice. He's happy. He's learning communication skills, really. Yeah. Yeah, geez. So I was at work the other day and a memory popped into my head. And it was of something that I hadn't thought about in maybe 20 years. And I suddenly remembered Mr. Borman, my high school gym coach. I hadn't thought about Mr. Mr. Borman was quite possibly the scariest five foot three German man that I've ever met in my life. Um, it, it, it was that kind of authority behind it that you had when you were a kid where I guess on some level you knew adults weren't allowed to hit you, but you had just enough of a suspension of disbelief that you think it might happen. Okay, I'm and visualizing Mr. Von Kaiser from Mike Tyson's punch <laughs> out, letting you know. He did have very close-cut hair. So uh, Mr. Borman was the sort of person who, and this is a story from my sister, uh, because she had him as the gym teacher, too. In high school, there weren't that many gym teachers, uh, who kept, you know, like there aren't enough kids uh, for to have four people on in, in every badminton game that you have playing in the, the gym. So the teacher has to sub in because you one group only has three people. Uh, my sister was on the team opposite Mr. Borman. <laughs> and Mr. Borman is so competitive, or was so competitive, I don't know how old he was. Everyone feels like they're 900 years old when you're a kid. Um, he was so competitive that he wouldn't blow the whistle to end the class period unless he until he was up by a point against my sister's team <laughs> so that he could call, call the, the class period and tell us to go back to the locker rooms and change that it was it went over by like about three or four minutes because my sister's team was winning. Um But what I really remember about Mr. Borman and I don't know why this is. One of those things that I can remember the tenor and feel of a room so clearly um, was that we had to, for whatever reason, do this uh, step aerobics segment of that gym class that year. And everyone hates it. Everyone likes to do stuff where you can go outside and play soccer or whatever. People like even running around the track is more fun than that because at least it's self-directed. But when we had to do step aerobics, I think it was like... Mario, um, what is the name of the guy from Saved by the Bell? He played AC Mario Slater Lopez. On there. Mario Lopez, yeah. Um, 
He was doing it, uh, the step aerobics video that we had to go along with. It had a soundtrack that was like Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, <laughs> was it, what did it have? It, very, was, it was not fun. Sega Genesis. Uh, it had very farty samples in it. it sounded like it was a cheap yeah, ass it was very keyboard. Oh, like the early run Sega Genesis Gen- with the wiring problems on the, on the <laughs> yes, PLC. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I That's know exactly. what it felt like. I mean, they, they clearly had sort of a beachfront set on the, on the video, and there was like a fake toucan on. Uh, on a hanging, you know, perch. And it was just, it was that kind of video and everyone in class hated it. So, um, sabotage happened. <laughs> I like to use, <laughs> I like to use the passive voice for this. It wasn't me, but sabotage happened. Um, somebody unplugged some cord on the VCR so that it couldn't play that tape. And, uh, Mr. Borman, would uh, set it up and start going, but someone would always unplug it or unplug something so that the tape would stop when he left the room. And Mr. Borman has a limited temper. I mean, he, he I wouldn't say he has a super short fuse, but he does not have a long fuse. And by like the third or fourth time that this thing got shut off, Mr. Borman was in a frothing rage. And to a... 15 or no, I think this is June. Oh shit. This was junior high. I think this was junior high. Um, but, uh, Borman was fucking pissed and (laughs) like the, you could feel it in the air. He just started screaming at us and, and maybe it's just the, the media consumption I've had, but frothing rage through a German accent is not fun. And, it, it conjures all sorts of, oh, my God, he's going to bring one of us forward and start paddling him. I mean, that kind of vibe in the room. I mean, you could cut it with a knife. It was He was angry. He was screaming. And um, uh, one of our classmates was uh, mentally challenged, and the tone escaped her, where I don't think she fully understood how um, – how thin the ice this class was on right now and really understood his. And she started laughing when he said, I'm going to put my foot down. And immediately I've never been in as tense a room as that moment where Borman was so angry, but knew he couldn't scream at this girl. It was like this bottle. It was like, it was like right before that moment in scanners where that guy's heads explode, <laughs> where we knew that he couldn't scream at this one girl. And you knew Borman knew that Borman knew he couldn't lose his temper at her. So it was just boiling and you felt this explosion coming. And the only thing in a movie I can compare it to is the donut shop scene in Boogie Nights, <laughs> <laughs> where it felt like you're looking at that that gun nut guy at the table and you're Don Cheadle and you're like shaking your head and you're begging him not to do something. That's what it felt like. I have never been in a room like that before or since because, oh my, it's, you know, I mean, maybe I'm just shooting it through the prism of being like a 14-year-old kid where everything when you're at that age feels like Dragon Ball Z. It feels like everything is going to turn into a battle that will destroy the moon. <laughs> but Jesus Christ, I don't think I have ever been that terrified where it felt like at any moment, you know, the moment in a Western where the piano player stops. Um I don't know why I remembered that the other day, but I was just like, holy shit, that was, 
that 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 girl just did not know what she was walking into, and it was just this like holy shit moment of oh my god, is Borman gonna kill this girl? <laughs> and you know, do I want to step up to protect her? He'll kill me too. I mean, it was just it was so fucking strange, and I don't know why, but that that whole emotion of that just came flooding back to me the other day. It there's, I mean, it's so it's so sort of foundational that you it's like you want to do the time travel thing where you go back with the understanding that you have of the world as an adult and sit back in the classroom in high school. And like, I remember going to honors English or being right before honors English and like sitting in the library, trying to last minute finish an essay and, uh, and the librarian who I was an aide there, she was like, what's, what's next? And I was like, Oh, I'm going to go to hell now, you know, because I dreaded so much going to the honors English class and going in there and turning in like a shoddy, mediocre assignment. And you realize like, I would love to sit in a high school at, at not as an, a conspicuous adult, but as a comfortable in skin teenager who can blend in. I would love to sit in a classroom full of 16 year olds and be like, what kind of things did we think we were profound at um, when it truly was they were, we were just children and how to how, like how easy it would be to surf through that basically in the academically speaking of course how easy it would be to surf through that as an adult because you're so intimidated by the surroundings of like because you don't know what's on the other side of school you know yeah everything feels so epic everything feels like it goes on forever when you realize that three years of high school four years of high school in some places is nothing and that I'm never going to see any of these people ever again, and I won't want to. And that if I go on Facebook in 10 years, because I don't know if Facebook exists yet, I will – these people that seemed like important figures in the world will seem utterly human and pathetic. And, and maybe I'll feel that way to them. But, I mean, it's just – it's so weird when you realize how non-important all of it is. And to be able to go back to that with the mindset of knowing how stupid this is and being unafraid in a setting like that would be so utterly liberating. Because you could accidentally become the coolest person in school by just not giving a shit. And I think I figured out that's what made people popular or not popular. That and bullying. <laughs> but <laughs> – it it was weird um, just to be able to not care. But at the same time, I don't want to go through all that again. I think I would probably find it utterly boring instead of interesting. I think that it would be fun to sit in on one class or one day at the most of high school again, but I would never want to do all of that again. I, I think I would just find it tedious. When Becky listens to this episode, she's going to find the silence from me right now incredibly telling. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I have. I'm going to assume that you had a, a Pink Floyd high school. Uh, uh, one of them, yes. It was very Pink Floyd y. Uh, <laughs> it was. Uh, I, I have. Um, uh, I. Don't know that I could do better at. at Wait, are you saying there was? Are you saying there was a lot of dark sarcasm? Is that is that what you're talking yeah. about? Uh, oh boy, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I one high school I, I went to. You know, um, uh, I had to go through a, a metal detector every day and wear an ID. Um, oh wow. And, uh, um. Yeah, I, I mean, I I understand what you're saying. Of of, wouldn't it be nice to go back to your former self and say, "Hey, 
the the stakes here uh, in the aren't as high as as you think they are. Uh, but in my case, I I just want to put this the ward against evil sign on that part of my history and never fucking go back there. I don't know that I could have improved things at all. <laughs> well, it's funny because I I know a little bit about you, Mike. I mean, we've talked about this, and I think you didn't you for lots of reasons didn't enjoy high school uh, and didn't do well in high school. And I, um, you know, I did well in high school and. I, you know, I was from a, r- a rural place in rural Oregon where this, this school wasn't great and the selection of teachers who would choose to be in such a school were obviously not among the top rung of, you know, the teachers in the country. Um, but I recall having a having a rel- mostly positive experience, but I liken that almost entirely to just having a crew you know, that understood you at the time. And I feel feel like if I didn't, if I didn't, hadn't had that, and if I was just in a place where I never found a crew of people that were into the same things as me, that were as accepting of my flaws as, as one could be, then I would probably would have had a much worse time. Um, But that said, I didn't have to walk through metal detectors. So I didn't sort of have other existential things to contend with. Yeah, I did. I did, certainly didn't have metal detectors either. I think that if I were to go back through high school, I would do better academically. Um, I think I was a really mediocre to poor student, and I had to work my ass off at the end to make sure that I graduated. I did not do super well. I think that I only ever started taking anything academically seriously when I was at a community college, and I think part of it was that I was there by choice and that I'm paying for this. Uh, it changes your sort of perspective on it. The fact that they don't treat you like, you know, an escaped felon uh, when you miss a day, you just have to make it up. And um, rather than feeling like you're going to be interrogated because you got sick, you know, that sort of thing. It changes a lot um, of the perspective. Um, I think I would, I would sort of hate it. I think, you know... I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know if I have anything profound to say. I don't think it's a secret. I've never made a secret of the fact that I did not graduate from high school. I, I don't. I don't think that's a that's a uh, a surprise to anyone here. Um, what I haven't said is that I went to five of them. Whoa. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I I didn't graduate. I was never a great student. Um, but my my entire school record was just lost at some point and. Uh, my school record said that I had begun, uh, and keep in mind I was born in 1978, that I had began attending high school in 1982, had attended four classes, but I had passed all of them. So I was apparently on the 400-year plan. Yeah, I'm going to say it sounds like you're a vampire covering your tracks. <laughs> yeah, me, yeah, I'm in Washington. Don't do not do that. Um, uh, <laughs> uh and um uh yeah so i mean at that point by the time that happened i was far enough into my academic career that i was either going to be uh in high school until i was 21 uh just because i couldn't shove enough credits into my day or i just had to get on with get my ged and get on with my life which is what i did and then i went to i went to uh um junior or you know the the college you go to when you don't go to college i what's the nice word for that i don't know um, uh, community college. Community college. That's it. Um, and a, a really nice one too. Um, I, I have, I've got nothing against them. I, I, I suggest them to people all the time. 
Um, I just want to say I went to community college. I have a two-year degree from uh, Green River Community College. Yeah, I'm not trying to be deprecating when I say that. I just, oh, I, I know I'm you're not. I know you're words. not. Um, but I, I was enrolled for precisely one semester, didn't take it uh, seriously at all. And I was trying to get a degree and like, I was trying to go to, like MIT or something because of Rocket Club. Um, but uh, uh, the thing is, is I was going to get a degree in computer science and my, my uh, honors uh, coordinator was like, well, here's, you know, what, what it's how things, what things are going to cost you. Um, and here's how, what, here's the infrastructure that you're going to need in order to get this degree and what you're going to have to go through to get this degree and how you're going to have to pay it off. And they're, they are, uh, they're talking in terms of money, more money than I've seen in my life in aggregate, not just in one place, but all the money I have ever seen in my life was like maybe 10% of what it was going to take for me to get this degree, the prestigious mm. kind of degree I was going to need to do what I wanted to do. But this was also 1996. Uh, and so I got a phone call from my friend. Hey, I got a gig for you down in, uh, uh, down on the south side that'll pay, uh, that was paying what they were telling me starting salaries for people what, with a degree was. And I'm like, so I can either go into hideous amounts of debt or just go work and so i just said you know and and like well what are the skill sets required well you know unix right and i'm like yeah, hell yeah I'm like yeah that's what they need and I'm like oh i didn't realize people needed that economically okay great bye <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there is a certain fetishization what we do with sort of higher education or what school you went to when it ultimately doesn't really matter we live in a fucking shitty economy where I could be saddled with, you know, six, di six digits of debt right now, and I'd still be fighting over the same fucking jobs with people, yeah. you know? it's it, it feels more and more like a scam that we've made it more and more expensive than, you know, all it is is, is bragging rights. And I think you made the right decision because you would be exactly where you are now, but you'd have a bunch of debt. Right. And, you know, it... I don't know. I there's a part of me where I think there's a value in education. I think there's a value in it in itself, not just and this is the the ugly commoditization that we have of fucking everything where something is only valuable if it helps you get a job rather right. than having a, a an inherent value in itself. That inherent value is always there, but it's so fucking expensive and that's not the only way that you can get that that experience or that knowledge. I, the thing about education these days, and it's going to have to change now that the apocalypse has come. But uh, uh, and there's a lot of people right now who are saying, I think it might be safer if I just don't go to college second, you know, to to college this year. Um, and is I got a front seat of like the commoditization and the corporatization of public education. Um, post-secondary education because I, I lived in Tempe, Arizona uh, from two from 1999 to 2007 and um, and Tempe is where ASU is uh, it, it's it's definitely it's a it's a college town inside of Phoenix and it has that college town liberalism inside of a fairly conservative metropolis of Phoenix kind of feel to it or at least it did when I first moved there and uh, then they got like the the folks who ran the school. They got rid of the people who ran the school, and um, 
hired somebody who had more of a corporate background and was basically like, hey, this school needs mm. to turn a profit for us, da, 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 which is what a lot of state schools have done. And yeah. they tore down ba- they tore down basically the heart of the city, Mill Ave, and and closed all like a, a lot of the places that were uh, that were like important to the culture of the town and then had chains come in or like big things that were supporting the school in some weird way. They spent a lot of money on the stadium. They built a whole bunch of big buildings that didn't make a lot of sense to the point where downtown Tempe started looking a lot like late game civilization where you look mm-hmm. at where you look at your capital and uh you know you've got the statue of liberty and the pyramids of giza and the coliseum and you know where it's like a, a whole bunch of weird big shit all jammed together in one tiny town and and that's what tempe T- tempe did in the like the decade that i uh near decades that i lived there is it went from just kind of a small campus town to like a a civilization monument uh uh, uh cultural city not not to any great benefit to the students or to the citizens of the city. It, it was all it was all uh, for the purposes of of you know they they jacked up uh, uh, tuition. They they started enforcing you know a, a big chunk of the uh, of, of freshmen uh, lived uh, lived in the, you know in the town because they could that that they could afford they couldn't afford. Uh, living on campus, but then they started enforcing on-campus living for like freshmen and sophomores, and yeah, and it just turned from it. it just I watched people. I, I watched it go from people being able to afford an education to not being able to afford an education. In 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 my just right in front of my eyes, and it was just it was horrifying for me to watch. And I'm I'm someone who's who's for reasons that I think might be a little bit obvious now, a little skeptical of post-secondary education. <laughs> well, as, prob- as probably the only person on this call who did emerge from secondary education with a not insignificant heap of of student debt, um, I am in full support of, of debt forgiveness, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yes. I mean, uh, I, I'm... I'm not some kind of, I didn't have parents who could pay that shit for me, so I just spent, you know, like 12 years being dedicated and and frugal and paid it all off and made sure that everything was fine. And I didn't, I actually missed one payment. I feel like a, a rube, but I missed one payment uh, very early on. Um, and my credit score will never let me forget. Uh, the, <laughs> but no, when I look at it in this way, I mean, I, I graduated college in 2002 even then, it was still pretty fucking expensive. Flash forward twenty mm-hmm. years, um, I cannot imagine the idea of coming out with the you know with there basically probably not being enough high paying jobs to actually end up servicing said debt um, and think there's no fucking reason why we should keep it around. They oh, don't level- don't worry, Casey. You can get five other jobs <laughs> that pay nothing. And you can make up for it. You just aren't allowed to sleep anymore, and you not have bathroom. No, that's breaks. what I'm saying. It's jubilee, man. It's jubilee. That's the. There's no. <laughs> there's no. You know, negotiated, namby pamby, like half, like. But maybe we can. You know, maybe we can give uh, people a little stipend. Or, no, no, no. Fuck that. L- level the playing field. Level it. Level it. That yeah. is the way to do it. Level it. Um, there's no. There's. Uh, there's. You know, automation is already here. Uh, and I said this a bajillion times, probably to both of you, Mike and Sam, like, 
we in our parents' generation, like, um, and even so now, your sort of signifier in society is like what your job is. Like, what do you do? What's your job? That's that is your worth, your your production, uh, your sort of wealth production, and then 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 alternatively, your consumption are sort of what signifies you as sort of a minted member of society. Well, there aren't enough jobs for people as it is now, and there will be fewer and fewer jobs as we move forward. So, you know, not everyone's going to have a job. So we need to think about yeah. what a society looks like when not everyone can have a job, but shit still needs to happen. So, Jubilee, that's step, step one. That's Then this is why I would never uh, win office, because no, <laughs> no corporate parties would ever want me to say, debt forgiveness, step one, ever, they would all shoot it down. As someone who enjoys public speaking, I've always kind of had it in the back of my head that, you know, hey, I could run for office someday. Nope! <laughs> nope! Uh-uh. No, that, that's dead. That is stone dead. You know, I, I, I mean, Tempe was all right. I do miss Jerry's, though. I mean, drive through liquor stores are convenient. <laughs> yeah, it seems it seems like there's a problem at, at Formula that you need to go back to with those because I, I can see. <laughs> oh, man. You know, since with COVID, movie theaters are out and drive in movie movie theaters are back in. You know, during COVID, why don't we make all liquor stores drive through movies or liquor stores? <laughs> Come on. It only makes sense. Well, a lot of them. A few of them are here in Tacoma. You, you, you phone ahead your order and they bring it out to you. That's awesome. Um, so. I had one more thing for for uh, because uh, Mike had been talking to me about how he's done with hero cop things for a while. Yeah, and I was like, what what could fit? Well, it it occurred to me that one of my my not necessarily a guilty pleasure, but like a hidden pleasure that like, like a, a thing that I don't talk about. I might offer that up publicly as as something that uh uh that you could watch. Uh, so I have a I actually have a recommendation. Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so it used to be something that I literally kept to myself and didn't talk to anyone about. And then Becky caught me watching an episode of it, and she got hooked on it. Now she's a bigger fan of it than I do. Uh, depending on where you are in the world, here in uh, the United States, it's called May Day. And elsewhere in the world, it's called Air Crash Investigations. Um, <laughs> that feels like all television right now. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. There's a there there. Um, but the thing is, it's it's always done in two parts. One is a dramatic reenactment of what happens in the cockpit. And it is two things, hokey and hyper-Canadian. Because it's made... <laughs> uh, it's made in the same... Out of the same factories that brought you uh, Battlestar Galactica and basically all science fiction in the 90s to the point where the guy who played Ron, Ronald Sandoval on uh, Earth Final Conflict shows up in a couple episodes. And I'm <laughs> happier than shit when that happens because that guy's great. The, um, are you talking about the people come from Vancouver Central Casting? Yes. Yeah, yeah nice. the Vancouver we, Science Fiction Casting <laughs> Machine. Yes. Are we talking about like recreations of real life crashes and they're the people in the recreations? Yeah, yeah. They recreate they recreate the things that led up to the to the accident. And that's part one. And then part two is the investigation of uh, uh, of the crash and figuring out what went wrong and how to prevent it. And the thing about about air crash investigators is that they're not so concerned with responsibility and placing blame. They want to know what happened. They want to know every everything, not just who to blame, 
but everything that contributed to this accident happening so that it doesn't happen ever again. For a lot of these guys, blame is secondary. So the usual circuit of finding justice usually isn't in these shows. It's about it. And the focus is always about saving lives. It's it's never about bringing, you know, there's a there's a few in there because, of course, because people, whatever it's it's not it, nothing is 100 percent perf- perfection. Perfection is an illusion. Um, but, you know, the the focus on it, it's actually I, I actually credit the show uh, for making me a better troubleshooter for for thinking about things uh, from a systems perspective a, a lot more clearly. Um, but it's it, it at its best. It can be hilarious uh when especially the episodes where no one dies those are my favorite um but then there's the 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 columbo-esque invested investigation of the guy who's just trying to figure crap out and and there's no 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 one has to draw a gun on anybody nobody has to have power over another individual and the focus is always on making sure that people stay alive and it's still dramatic, and it's still fun, and it's still hyper Canadian, and I love it. Um, they're, they're, uh, the names of their shows are always hilarious, though. It's always like Deadly Doom, Descent of Destruction. Ooh, you know, they don't say Crash, <laughs> but they always have like. It's, descent- a, it's pulp. Yeah, descent. Pulp it is absolutely pulpy. Yeah, it's super pulpy. Uh, but it, it doesn't have a lot of the tropes you get from a. a from a Dick Wolf production, I'll put it that. Well, way. this sounds an awful lot, Sam, like the sort of uh, Rescue Nine One One thing, which is, you know, you really, really have to try to oversell uh, the drama in a situation where there's maybe only like a ten second anecdote, but you need to stretch it out to eight minutes. But I don't know, maybe, yeah. maybe there's a lot more to be told because maybe the problems are sort of more deep than somebody gets kidnapped by a bad guy. I don't know. My 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 favorite ones are 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 the ones where everybody lives, but really crazy shit happens, like the Gimli Glider one or the Taka one, where the guy uh, slipstreams the seven thirty seven, um, and uh, uh, or ones where they get hyper technical about you know because it's me, where they get hyper technical about like the hardware failures on the plane, but the investigators. They're, they're, they're just there to discover things. They don't carry guns. They're not cops. They're not... They're, it, it's an entirely different uh, mil, like mental milieu for figuring out your way through a tragedy and what caused it than, we're, than what we see in police procedurals. And it was such a breath of fresh air to me when I first saw it uh, that I immediately stopped watching even those few remaining police shows that 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 I liked. So that's that's my media suggestion. Nice. Thanks, Sam. I have I have a YouTube channel that I've become somewhat addicted to over the last couple of years and I'm a bit trepidatious about sharing it with you because it feels like it's going to come with no small amount of personal judgment. Is it is this the <laughs> one about I, the dildo collectors cuz you can you can rest assured you're not the only one, Mike. <laughs> no, no, it's not, it's not about dildo collectors. But this is actually something that uh, that plays to a part of my personality, and this is something I actually share with Piper. There's something very zen about watching this channel. It goes to the same place and level of enjoyment I get from cleaning out the lint filter on a dryer. 
where it just kind of, when you can pull out the filter and swat it against a trash can, it all comes off in one piece. And you're just like, <laughs> oh. Okay. And it is, it is a British um, channel called Audiology Associates. And it is an ear doctor who cleans out impacted earwax. Oh, my God. (laughs) Using Ah. a variety of tools. It's kind of like he's got his golf bag and he's, he's, oh, which one? I'm going to use a five wood on this. Um, (laughs) And after a while, you become familiar enough with different uh, types of earwax, whether it's uh, their consistency, their hardness, their color, that you find yourself going, I think he should use a Zollner tube on this one. <laughs> I think it's time to pull out the Jobson horn um, or the crocodile forceps or any of the other tools that he uses. Because you know, you it is like you have to be kind of careful with some of these tools because you're getting closer and closer to the eardrum. And uh, he just is a very delightfully friendly British guy who is a doctor and has a little camera that goes into the ear canal for his patients. And then later he's... Uh, narrating over that and you start to be able to recognize it's like oh okay it looks like this person overuses cotton swabs and you it's just and when he manages to get something out it is weirdly satisfying especially and this is a part of it feels like the judgment's coming if he can get it all out in one piece (laughs) which is always his goal um there was one ear that they pulled like five cotton balls in a row like he had been forcing cotton balls down with other cotton balls And the shit they got out of this, I don't even know how he was able to hear after this, but uh, this is a YouTube channel that Piper is the only person that doesn't judge me for liking this because she likes it too. And it's just, you know, getting down to a nice, clean, shiny eardrum just feels like some kind of accomplishment. That's awesome. I I don't have a suggestion that is not nearly as as satisfyingly funny as that, but for the last five years and i feel like this is sam i feel like sam you probably this has ran across your uh youtube diet before called primitive technology yes sir. oh yeah yeah so, so mike do you know what i'm talking about vaguely it sounds okay familiar. so primitive technology is a sort of a diy um see a guy put something together that's essentially the the i'm sure sam loves those see somebody put something together that's the the kind of video it is except this is just a guy in australia who walks around in not but a pair of shorts um who's in the woods building stuff out of dirt and wood and rocks and so i've seen this so he starts off very early he starts off with you know like how would a neolithic person like make an axe and so you know he'll you see him searching for the right wood and you see him find a stone and then he sharpens the stone with other stones to make like an adze um and then he cuts down a tree and he, he's like he's building an ever more increasing tool set of tools to be able to do this and it gets to him starting to make shelters now, and then it gets starts to get really fucking fascinating because none of these videos are narrated they do have um, annotations on them where if you want to, you can turn the captions on and he sort of gives you a sentence description about what's actually happening. But it's the most it's the most interesting when you don't reading it and you're just guessing what it is that he's actually doing. So he's he doesn't narrate it. So there's no annoying voice. There's no like music. There's no dorky soundtrack. He's 
just nuts and bolts about the whole thing, and it's just a guy digging around in the mud, starting fires by spinning a stick around, and then building something out of just trash on the forest floor. And it is it is meditation. It is total meditation. And it gives you that sort of like a, what the fuck am I doing with my life sort of idea. <laughs> <laughs> like if I, were, if I were dropped out of an airplane in the middle of the Australian wilderness, I mean, this guy would have, you know, have the writs by week's end, and I would be shivering in the dark. So I yeah, <laughs> but it's a it's a such an, a wonder. I don't think I'm actually acquiring any real skills that I could end up using later. Which I think nominally you should probably be thinking about. Oh, I could I could tr- try that. Um, but it is just like meditation, but primitive technology. That's my recommendation. I I actually panel beat one of my laptops with a uh, technique that I discovered from from that guy. Um, it's on my. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it's on my my insomnia list. Uh, things that are quiet that will keep my mind occupied with not terrifying things so that I can sleep. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, and as far as that that the your um your pod uh, your YouTube uh, suggestion Mike goes, um, I get it. I mean, okay, I'm a little you know, uh, ear stuff. <laughs> ah, I'm 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 a delicate flower. I I fully admit that. But uh. The idea of, of the, the 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 lint trap thing that that moment of, of of gratification is is something I definitely understand. So I get that. And may I offer your description your descriptions of of these of these things that I may not necessarily like as sort of <laughs> evidence of what I mean by it's in the telling. Is it something? Yeah. Is it something that I like? No, it grosses me out a little bit. But boy, howdy, was it interesting listening to it. <laughs> you describe it. You had my oh, attention the whole time. <laughs> it, oh, wax comes in so many colors, man. You have no idea. I know what you're trying to do, Mike. First, the Audiologist Associates channel, and then second, Dominic Toretto. That's that's got that has to be the path to Sam. You're trying to reach him. You got to get the get the barb in one side, and then Fast and the Furious on the next one. It'll come. So you're saying that the uh, the pathway to Sam's heart is through yes. his ears. <laughs> pathway to family. I, family. I think there's another uh, weird YouTube channel that I've discovered, and Sam, you knew what it was before I started to try to describe it to you, which is uh, Kit Boga. Yes. Who who is a scam baiter? Who uh, I guess he twitches Twitch streams this stuff. Where, you know, those uh, phone calls that you get saying, this is a phone call from the IRS, or this is a phone call from Microsoft Security, there is something on your computer, and there's a, there's a, like something from the dark web, you call this number. Uh, so he calls that number to a call center in another country, and uh, then he wastes these people's time using a voice changer that will disguise him as a little old lady or an old man. And he will drag them through these crazy narratives where they think they're about to get an old lady's money. But there was one call that lasted, and he has a little timer at the top of it. So even when he edits ahead in time, you know uh, how long he's been on the phone with them collectively. He'll get off the phone, do this. It's usually scams involving, oh, we accidentally overpaid you. You need to pay us back with, with like, Google Play gift cards, which is not suspicious <laughs> at all. Yeah. The, the, the known and international will... currency, Google <laughs> gift cards. 
and lead them, and they will change the company they work for. They'll be Google one second, and they'll be Apple the next. Oh, whoa, we do this uh, security for both Apple and Microsoft. And he's like, <laughs> and he just sort of plays dumb. And these are the sort of people that prey on largely older people who don't understand their computers, who are scared by all those advertisements about the dangers of the dark web, and um, get them to give up their retirement savings to somebody. Uh, pretending to be there to save them. And what he will frequently do is lead them on a merry chase where they think, you know, this is this channel is all about the fallacy of sunk costs, that some of these people will stay on the phone with him for hours thinking that if they've, they've gone this far, in for a penny, in for a pound, that eventually there's a big pile of cash that they'll get. And it never happens. And one of the most beautiful moments are the bits where he pretends like he's transferring them the gift card, but it's clear that he's just uploading it to his own account. And he has like a bunch of fake things. So even when they get into his computer through uh, remote access, they're really just looking at a computer inside of a computer that he controls. And he has a bunch of fake websites and his fake bank account. I think it was like Gull and Bull Financial. (laughs) Fake banks. He's got a really great, like a really in-depth honeypot network going on. It's amazing. (laughs) It's like second community access. It's like a bank, but the the acronym is clearly scam. (laughs) And... And he will lead them on and on, and he'll have a, a machine that looks like the um, Apple or Google Play uh, gift card things where you can um, upload them to your thing. And he says, whatever numbers he puts in there, it say, oh, you've just added $500. So these people think they're watching this money that they've gotten this lady to go to Bartell's drug for whatever reason to pick up. They're watching that money fall between their fingers. He even had one that was this elaborate 36-hour series of phone calls with one group of scammers where he kept them on the phone that long and he created the illusion that there was a second scammer who was competing with them <laughs> for for the money and that all of these other scammers were being successful in getting money and that only this one group, you know, these guys that he's fucking with, are the only people that aren't getting money and it was just enough to keep them on the hook. And it was it's like a it's like a it's like a Russian novel epic of yeah. these guys trying to lie to an old lady who is really a a, a twenty something guy with a voice changer. And it is fascinating. Um and I've I, never seen And I like how he keeps ahead. it positive. He stays positive the whole time. And that I think yeah. that makes it a lot more that's easier to watch. He doesn't make fun of the scammers. He doesn't well, I mean, you know, other than this huge chase he's leading them on, but other people have tried it and they always get like super negative and occasionally racist. It doesn't get it, it and, doesn't get angry. It never gets racist. He never brings up the fact that these guys are clearly in another country and stuff. And he'll yeah. occasionally throw things out there as a little lady where she'll just thank them. Oh, you know, and just I'm so happy that you're here to help me. You're you're when you go home to your kids, you must they must be so happy that you just help people all day. <laughs> and and obviously these guys they, they've you know, as as Arnold says in a movie, his heart, their hearts have grown cold to their pleas of mercy <laughs> at this point. <laughs> but you get to see these guys who are so clearly greedy, so driven by greed, that they will fall for some of the weirdest shit, and they will go along with some of the oddest things that this guy leads them on, and it's wonderful. I I really really enjoy watching him play these scams up, and he has these various characters that he plays. And there was like five different voices he brought on. I uh, 
I also like the meta challenges that, that he does. Like he tries to get them occasionally. He brings in a guitar and he tries to get the scammer to like sing with him. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, it's worked a couple times. And he's constantly trying to get the get to do the up dog joke. <laughs> like that's yes. like the apex of his day is when he can successfully execute the up dog joke. It's it's pretty good. <laughs> It's, it's oh, it's wonderful. I think there's one where he caught scammers on with other scammers, um, <laughs> on the same phone call together, and it turned into an audio version of that Spider-Man meme where the two Spider-Mans are pointing at each other, <laughs> where they were both, "Ma'am, this guy's a scammer. This guy's a scammer. Hang up right now. Hang up right now." And it was watching them fight. There was one where he told one scammer, I want you to pretend to be my lawyer to argue with this Microsoft person. And clearly this scammer is going off of television. So he's just randomly yelling things like objection at the other person (laughs) as if he's pretending to be their lawyer. And they're just arguing with other scammers and they're fighting over money that doesn't exist. And I've, I really love it. Yeah. It's 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 worth checking out. I'll I'll say that. Yeah, the channel is uh, Kit Boga, and I think every so often someone will recognize his voice. He's like Batman to some of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> that they they sort of recognize what's going on, and I mean they all have YouTube, so it's it's but it's hilarious because there's he's sort of like a creature of legend, and I guess he goes with a secret identity because he doesn't want to get doxxed or anything like that. But like you said, there's a there's a positivity to it, and it feels like you're being brought in on a joke, and it's like I don't feel bad because this this person he's messing with is trying to rob an old woman, right? And you just. It also is an interesting education in how these scams work and how these guys try to lead you towards giving them money. He kind of leads you through it while the person is messing with him and saying, okay, he's probably going to do this now, or I set up this thing where he can't do his usual thing and watch him try to scramble to make time. And what's also fun is since these guys are all calling from call centers in India, there are people in the comments thread who, who speak Hindi, who are translating the stuff these guys are yelling to each other. Right. And oftentimes it's like serious panic time where they're like, oh my God, that woman is singing again. Will she shut the fuck up? <laughs> and just, and it, you see them start to panic. No, no, stay on the phone, stay on the phone. You know, this and just arguing amongst themselves. And there's always somebody in the comments who will go, this is what they're saying right now. And it's it's spectacular. Agreed. The greatest generation. hey everybody before we let you go we have an announcement to make radio versus the martians is going on hiatus for a while we're not quitting or retiring or pod fading we're not ending the show But we do feel we owe you all an explanation for why we're going to be taking some time off from the show for the next few months, after podcasting with very few interruptions over the past seven and a half years. For one, the big thing with us has always been the quality of our shows. We take a lot of pains to make sure that our show has the best sound quality that we can manage, and we record in person in studio with our guests because we think it helps the show's flow better and be more conversational. But Casey and I haven't recorded an in-studio episode of this program since very early March, which is 
coincidentally enough, the last time we saw each other in person. And we feel it's cut pretty deeply into the overall quality of our shows, which is why we haven't done any topic-based episodes since March. Because we really don't want to botch those topic episodes. We take this show very seriously, and we both share a sizable imposter syndrome. So when we feel that an episode didn't go as well as the version of the recording that we had in our heads, it can be very psychologically exhausting, and it's often why it takes me several days sometimes to start editing an episode after a recording session. Normally when I get around to the edit and I'm able to disentangle myself from the perfect platonic ideal of the episode I had in my head, I usually realize the show itself wasn't that bad, and sometimes it's even pretty good. But it's been getting harder and harder to motivate ourselves. We've been doing episodes remotely over Skype with little to no notes and without a predetermined topic. And we feel that we've been repeating ourselves and not living up to the standards we've set for both ourselves and this show. Then there is the world outside. As you can't help but notice in a world with the COVID-19 pandemic and the nationwide popular uprisings against racist policed violence, it's becoming a more unavoidably scary and exhausting world to live in. And... We know that in times like these, you need escapism. You need to find something that lets your brain take a break just to protect your sanity and your mental health. I know this because I need this stuff right now. I, I need to be able to take an hour or two out of my day to think about something that actually makes me happy or distracts me. And I don't know where my brain would be if I didn't have comic books and novels and podcasts and YouTube channels to help me take that break. But right now, we are not in a place emotionally or psychologically where we can make that kind of show for you right now. We're tired and we're scared and angry and not in the way that's conducive to the kind of show we want to do. And it's getting a lot harder to talk about things like movies or comic books or science fiction with any kind of enthusiasm without feeling like a giant callous asshole. So we're taking some time off. For now. When we are finally able to start meeting together safely in person, hopefully before the end of the year, we are going to come back and we are going to finally record our panel episode on Frank Miller's Sin City with guests in studio. And maybe six or seven months after that, we're going to be recording our panel episode on Battlestar Galactica, the reboot series, as promised to our Patreon supporters. And in between those panels, we're going to be doing something different. For probably the next year after we come back, we are going to be doing nothing but recording episodes of our Arnold Schwarzenegger podcast show, Podcast La Vista, baby. It's our favorite show to do, and based on the downloads, it's the most popular thing we do. And speaking of Patreon, during the hiatus, we are going to continue our Patreon page. But we are not going to be hoarding your money like a dragon, minus the small amount that we pay to host our episodes and websites. We are going to be donating the entirety of our Patreon donations to Black Lives Matter Seattle King County for the duration of the hiatus. 
So your money's going to be there doing some good. We're going to be putting some good out into the world, even if the podcasts aren't coming out. We hope you'll stay with us. We have a lot of really cool stuff to do, and we're not done yet. So we'll catch you next time. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. be back.